This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. It's our penultimate episode. If you're like me and you haven't heard that word before, it means second laugh. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Ewan, Dr. Jen, and Chris KP. I'm rushing a little bit this morning because we have actually our first guest already on the phone from the US, and we, uh, we want to make sure that the connection holds. Um, on, on the line with us is Robert Curzon. Robert, can you hear us? I can hear you loud and clear. Excellent. Now, you're the author of a book that I've been plowing through for, uh, uh, well, I'm a, I'm, I don't have much time to read, but uh, it's called Rocket Man. I've been reading it for a couple of months. It was sent to us. And it's the story of the Apollo 8 mission, which now, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're about to hit the 50th anniversary of this story, aren't we? Yes, we are two weeks away from the 50th anniversary of the launch of Apollo 8, which I'll make a very strong argument is the single most important and daring and risky space mission of them all. So it's a really important thing to remember and uh, had consequences that still, you know, echo and ripple through to today. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because my, my recollection of the importance of Apollo 8 before I started reading your book actually was very much around the Earthrise photograph, which many people would be aware of, that great picture of the lunar landscape with the Earth in the background sort of rising up. But having read your book, there's a lot more to, as you say, the, the difficulty and, and the risks involved. Can you talk us through a bit, of, a bit of that? Because I think most people wouldn't be aware of just how, how hard that was at the time. Yeah, it was. it's unthinkable even 50 years later that they even attempted this because when NASA made the decision to send Apollo 8 to the moon, it was done suddenly. It was an epiphany of a brilliant man at NASA named George Lowe. And it came with just 16 weeks to go before the scheduled launch. So normally, um, NASA would take anywhere from a year to a year and a half of planning, training, um, simulations to get a spaceflight going. This one had just four months, just 16 weeks. Mm. And it was everything had to be done in a hugely compressed way very quickly, um, and nothing was ready when they planned it. Um, the uh, software had still yet to be written. The trajectories had to be perfected. The deep space communication network um, still had to be perfected. Um, but that was just the start of the worries. Um, so much risk was uh, undertaken in this thing. Um, and it was all done really for two reasons. The first was to keep President John F. Kennedy's promise to the country made in 1961, to land a man on the moon and bring him home safely before the end of the decade. NASA and the whole country took that, that promise very seriously. But by late 1968, um, problems with the lunar module at NASA made it look like the whole Apollo program was going to grind to a halt. Um, the second reason they did it, and the reason that many people think was the primary reason they went so quickly and under such duress, was to beat the Soviet Union to sending the first human beings to the moon mm. because it was long thought that the country that could send the first humans to the moon would be the de facto winner in the space race, which had been going on for a decade and which to both sides had existential implications. So in certain ways, the future of the world was riding on who got the first men to the moon. And 
Apollo 8 was going to be the United States attempt at doing that. Mm. Robert, can you can you give us a bit of an idea of why Apollo 8 was different? Because uh, the, the previous missions, of course, were all Earth orbit missions and they didn't go beyond that. What was so special about Apollo 8 and what was the big jump that was made uh, in difficulty for Apollo 8? Well, Apollo 8 is going to take us magnitudes beyond where humans have ever gone. In the summer of 1968, the world altitude record uh, set in a space mission was 853 miles. So human beings had never traveled more than 853 miles over the Earth's surface. And all of this is leading up, the Gemini program and then the Apollo program is leading up to a lunar landing. That's the idea of Apollo is to put human beings on the moon's surface. But in order to do that, NASA has to work in steps. And they have to keep testing a little bit more, a little bit more, perfecting the techniques and the equipment, the procedures, everything. And so everything has to go in these very organized um, steps to get finally to the lunar landing. When Apollo 8 went, um, things were looking very bad at NASA. As I said, this lunar module, that's the thing that NASA needs to land humans on the moon. It's falling behind in production and design problems. And it's threatening to slow Apollo down or even grind it to a halt. So they need to do something to keep the program moving. And the idea behind Apollo 8 is, listen, instead of waiting for this lunar module and doing everything in steps like we always do, which is in our DNA here at NASA, why don't we make uh, a leap uh, of magnitudes and send Apollo 8, which was ordinarily scheduled just for an Earth orbit checkout mission, why don't we send that not? 100 miles over the Earth's surface into Earth orbit, not 853 miles, which is the equivalent, the altitude record at the time. Let's send it all the way to the moon, 240,000 miles away. Because with, if we leave the lunar module behind, we are capable, at least in theory, of doing this if we can jam everything possible into this 16 weeks, get everything right, find a crew, and somehow train for this. We could actually pull this off in that amount of time. And if we do that, if we can send Apollo 8 to the moon at Christmas of 1968, we can keep President Kennedy's promise alive. At least we still have a shot instead of grinding to a halt here. And maybe even more importantly, we have an outside chance of beating the Soviets to sending the first men to the moon. Mm. That's what was at stake here because a top secret CIA memo had come in warning that the Soviet Union was ready to send cosmonauts to the moon around the moon as early as late 1968 and so by sending apollo 8 that fast that far we could keep the president's promise alive and we have an outside chance to beat the soviets to the moon so that's what's at stake at the very end of the worst maybe one of the worst years in american history Mm. Robert, uh, just on that, actually, one of the things I found interesting reading this book, and I, I've actually, you know, I'm a bit of a space nut, so I've read a lot of these um, sorts of books, especially biographies of, you know, Neil Armstrong and others. But your book has a lot more social commentary than um, than the other books I've read, especially, as you say, around what was happening in the U.S., at that particular time. And it, I mean, as someone who grew up in Australia, you know, I'm aware of some of it, but it, it seems as though the nation was literally tearing itself apart from all sides for five or six different reasons at that point. Yes. It, I think if you look at American history, perhaps outside the Civil War years, 1968 was the single worst and most divisive and terrible year in the country's history. We have the assassination of two major civil rights leaders, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, 
We are on our way to 15,000 dead in Vietnam. We have a president who has announced that he will no, not seek re-election. We have violence in the streets weekly, including here in Chicago, my hometown, at the Democratic National Convention, which is horrible, being broadcast nationally on television. It seemed everybody was divided against everyone else. The very fabric of society was being torn apart on a daily basis. It really did seem as if there was nothing that could bring this country together again. And here these people are planning to do something, not just at the end, the very end of this terrible, terrible year, but they're actually going to go on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. They're going, they're planning to be in lunar orbit. And that um, is terrifying to a lot of people in this country and a lot of experts who begin to beg NASA, don't go, don't rush, don't imperil the lives of these three men who are fathers and husbands. This year has been so terrible, but Christmas is that one day where we have a few hours just to exhale mm. and to relax and to settle down for, you know, just for the day. And here are the, you're going to put these brave men at the moon on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Please don't do it. Yeah. But NASA was committed. The astronauts believed they could do it. The managers believed they could do it. And they were, they were absolutely um, mm. dedicated to making a go of it. Robert, was this the first time uh, the astronauts were doing video broadcasts as well back to, to Earth, or had that happened before? It had happened on the previous flight, Apollo 7, which was an Earth orbit mm. flight. But this is the first time it's going to be attempted at any kind of you know real distance. Yeah. Frank Borman, the commander of Apollo 8, when he was given this flight and given only 16 weeks to prepare, in the first meeting he had when they hammering out a flight plan, objected strenuously to bringing cameras at all. Borman had joined NASA for a single purpose, and that was to defeat the Soviet Union's Soviet Union on the most important battlefield of all, which was space. He did not care about exploration of the cosmos. He didn't care about picking up lunar rocks or geology. He was there to defeat the Soviets. And he told the NASA managers, let's go once around. We'll beat the Soviets, and that's it. Let's not complicate this. Let's not bring any cameras. They're heavy. They're complicated. They get in the way. They're distracting. But NASA was committed to doing not one, but four live broadcasts during this mission, the third of which was planned for Christmas Eve itself. Mm. And they overruled Borman. And if you talk to him today, he laughs about it. He says, boy, I was wrong on that one. But NASA made the case that this flight belongs not just to, to NASA, it belongs to America and it belongs to the world. Because think about this. Apollo 8 represented something truly Homeric in scope. This was going to be the first time human beings ever left home and the first time human beings ever arrived at a new world, our most ancient companion, the moon. So they would believe very strongly that this should be shared by everybody worldwide. And Borman finally saw the, the reason in that and brought, they brought those cameras along. Mm. The, the, the interesting thing for me was, um, as you say, they went from the previous mission, which was just an Earth orbit, which is, I mean, when they say relatively easy, it's, it's not. It's extraordinarily difficult, but relatively easy compared to this. But they didn't just loop around the moon and come back, you know, in that sort of nice free trajectory, the figure eight sort of scenario. They actually all but stopped and orbited the moon. I mean, that, that must have been an extraordinary difference in complexity, even just in the amount of fuel, everything that is required to do that. It's an almost incalculable leap, leap in complexity, um, many magnitudes, and they could have defeated the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union only was planning that figure eight free return mm. trajectory, as you mentioned. They weren't planning to go into orbit. 
But when NASA got this idea that we, we could go near Christmas at the end of 1968, they thought, listen, as long as we're going to use this gigantic Saturn V rocket, and as long as we're going to take this risk, let's go for everything. Let's not just go around the moon. Let's get into orbit around the moon. And not a high orbit, but one just 69 miles over the lunar surface. And let's not orbit once or twice. Let's orbit 10 times over 20 hours to do it. So that when we come back, we really, really did it. And that's what they committed to. Mm. I mean, just I, I think just to pause there. So the, the distance to the moon is 250,000 odd miles. And they were placing themselves in orbit at that point, just 60 odd miles above the surface. Right. Yeah. And not only are they placing themselves 69 miles above the, above the surface, they are... Um, they are doing it while the moon itself is hurtling through space at yeah. over 2,200 miles an hour. So they're shooting at a moving target. Yeah. Mike Borman told me that when, when they were given this assignment, he started to calculate the average age of the trajectory specialists who were planning the, the <laughs> mission, you know, the direction. Yeah. And he came up with the number 24 years old. <laughs> so think about that. And that's. That's who was making this mankind's first journey to the moon, who was planning it out. That was equivalent. That accuracy was equivalent to throwing a peach in the air and then throwing a dart at it from a distance of 28 feet and needing to hit the top of the fuzz with the dart without touching the skin on the peach. <laughs> that's, that's the technical accuracy that's required here. And you have 24-year-old guys doing this. <laughs> Yeah. The fate of the of the space program hangs in the balance. As the head of NASA reminded the NASA planners when they first brought this plan to him, first he, he listened to their plan for Apollo 8, and he said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> and he reminded them of, of their several risks. And then he reminded them that if anything happens to men, this is a quote, he said, if anything happens to these three men, no one, poets, lovers, no one, will ever look at the moon or mm. Christmas the same way again. Yeah. And he was right. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, I, the other description I loved in your, in your book was the, um, the sort of rotisserie requirement of the spacecraft on the way to the moon. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, these are, these are things you never think about. Yeah. But of course, they, they matter. When the spacecraft is, is on its journey to the moon, um, it can't fly statically because one side is exposed to the sun and will bake and, and broil in the sun, and the other side remains too cold. So they go into what they call barbecue or rotisserie mode, <laughs> where the spacecraft turns on its axis like a, you know, like a rotisserie chicken does. And I think it's once one revolution an hour, and it spreads the heat. So even those kinds of little things have to be worked out. And part of what makes Apollo 8 so thrilling is that everything they're doing on this journey, everything is for the first time. You know, when you listen to the other Apollo astronauts talk about Apollo 8, including Neil Armstrong, who was on the backup crew, Mm. for Apollo 8, they seem to say the same things. And you could hear Neil Armstrong saying, you know, when we went on Apollo 11, so much of what we needed to do had already been proved doable, save for the landing itself. But when Apollo 8 went, nobody knew that any of this could be done yet. So everything is for the first time. Think about this just as, as one example of a first thing. They need to fly the Saturn V. It's the only rocket powerful enough to deliver human beings to the moon. By the way, as we talk here at the end of 2018, the Saturn V remains 50 years mm -hmm. later the most powerful machine ever built. Yep. In, in an era, you know, in a time when technology is obsolete in months, 50 years later, it remains the most powerful machine ever built. Mm 
But when Apollo 8 was on the launch pad, the Saturn V had only flown twice, only twice, both times unmanned in unmanned tests, the second of which failed catastrophically. Now in the third only ever flight of this mighty, monstrous, beautiful rocket, they have no clue if it's going to work the third time. It didn't work the second time. But they're putting men with families atop a 363-foot-tall rocket, and they're going to depend on that to get them to the moon. That's one of the many, many firsts that Apollo 8 mm. is undertaking, none of which has been proved when they, when they launch on December 21st of 1968. Yeah. Well, Robert, I think, um, look, I've, I'm, I'm just having a look now. I'm on page uh, 265 of your book, and I haven't quite finished it yet, but I will, uh, no doubt, before uh, the 50th anniversary hits. Um, it's, a, it's a great read. Congratulations on the way you put it together because, you know, these, these sorts of stories can be, can be very dryly written, but the, the way you've infused information, especially about their families and the social uh, aspects of the United States at the time, has, has certainly given Apollo 8 a different context for me. Um, as someone who's, you know, loved this stuff for, for decades and has read a lot about it, I've never really read as much about the context of what Apollo 8 meant to NASA and, and the US and so forth. So um, congratulations on the book. Um, I hope it does well. And thanks so much for talking to us today. So great to talk to you. And thanks for having me. It's been an honor. You're, you're very welcome. Robert Curzon is the author of the book Rocket Men, and the uh, the publisher of that is Scribe Publications. And uh, I, I would say, folks, it's um, I'm not I'm not one to normally push books, but this is one that people should really read. It's a great story, and it's a part of NASA's history that I think most people don't hear about. You know, Apollo 11, Apollo 13, everyone knows about those two, but Apollo 8 is the one that did most of the hard stuff. So, yeah, really worth a look. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us now is our second guest for today. It's Dr. Laura Osalame. She is a postdoctoral fellow in the School of Molecular Science in the College of Science, Health and Engineering at La Trobe University. Laura, how are you? And did I pronounce your name correctly? Yeah, absolutely. That was fantastic. I think that's the best I've ever heard it pronounced. Wow. You know. Well, I'll take that as a compliment. Given you, I assume your family's yeah, saying it. Yeah, what are the That's the one and only time I'll get it right for the whole interview. Now, <laughs> now you work in a very specific area of cancer. Tell us a bit about this, because this is something we, I don't think we've talked about on the show before. So give us the, the sort of area of cancer first. Yeah, so when we're talking about sort of describing cancer cachexia, most people sort of give us a blank yeah. look. It's not a word you hear very often, but in terms of the field of cancer, it's something that we do actually see a lot in the patients. So it's seen in up to anywhere from 30 to 80% of cancer patients. Right. It's not something that is easily diagnosed. You don't often see it on patient notes, but it's characterised by um, muscle and fat wasting, okay. sort of in the late to terminal stages of cancer. Right. Um, and the, I mean, the main problem with it is that there's actually no way to treat it. We don't have any drugs in the clinic to treat this. So when we're talking about, um, cachexia and muscle and fat wasting, mm. we're specifically talking about it in a cancer setting. So it's, uh, a sort of a side or a, 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 a metabolic syndrome that happens in the terminal to late stages of cancer and it's characterised by muscle and fat loss. Is, is this something that happens, like you, you mentioned the percentage of patients, but does it happen in all cancer types? Not, not generally, no. It's very high incidences in aggressive cancer types mm -hmm. such as colorectal and pancreatic and sort okay. of the best 
visualization that that we sort of give is if you remember what Steve Jobs sort of looked like towards the end of his life, that is classic cancer cachexia. Right. He had a very aggressive type. If I remember correctly, it was pancreatic. Mm. Yep. Um, and we generally see this condition a lot in that type of cancer. So mm-hmm. we don't tend to see it in, in breast cancer, very small amounts in prostate cancer, but we do see it, but it is those very aggressive types that we see it in. And, and I mean, you're referring to cancers there more around the digestive tract and stuff. Is that, is that part of that link it's as, really, a, as opposed to something like breast cancer? For example? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. So you would generally think yes, mm-hmm. um, but, of course, you've got the added complexity there of chemotherapy as mm. well. That does impact on how people feel. We, we tend to now call it this buzzword wellness. It impacts yep. on patient wellness. But there's been numerous studies showing that if you increase the calorific intake of a patient's diet, doesn't actually impact on the muscle and fat loss. So it's wow. a different mechanism entirely. Mm, um, there's been clinical trials that have failed um, involving uh, something called a ghrelin agonist. So there's drugs out there that antagonise the ghrelin receptor to increase a peptide that stimulates your appetite. That didn't work. Doesn't work. No, mm-hmm. failed clinical trials relatively recently, actually. Mm. So you were saying before that um, that you start to see this, you know, uh, obviously in late stages. Can you get a hint earlier? Is there something, some way of sort of going? This looks like it might be a problem later if it goes that far. That's like the um, sort of the golden. Golden chalice of, of okay. cancer cachexia research. So we do see it in the late to terminal stages, but it's incredibly powerful if we could sort of pick out something in the early stages, whether it's a, a biomarker or a marker of metabolism that we could say, okay, this patient's got cachexia. They, oh, this patient has cancer. Sorry. Mm. It's in a, a t- cancer type that we would normally associate. Mm-hmm that they may develop cachexia, is there something, some non-invasive way that we can pick out this condition earlier? I mean, that's that's sort of, you know, saying that we have a treatment for them. We don't mm, at the yeah, moment. Yeah. So that is sort of limited So to that, that aspect as well. Yeah, we can say you've got cancer cachexia, but at the moment we can't do anything for you. And that have implications for other treatments too. For, Absolutely. For yeah, yeah. So we, um, we specifically focus on cancer cachexia, so what is the tumour doing in this setting, but it is found in other diseases such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, congestive heart failure. Um, We're specifically interested in the cancer element, but it is implicated in other diseases as well. So, so if I've got this right, you said it doesn't actually matter if you increase the calorie um, supply, that, that doesn't actually, I guess, stem the losses. But what about physical activity? So, and I guess obviously if you're in late stages, that, that may not be an option because you're so weak already, but in the earlier stages, like if you're doing, you know, um, resistance training, things like that, which presumably is stimulating the muscles, does that somehow at least run partly counter to what's going on or, or what do we know about that? Yeah, so the, the head of our department actually, Professor Robin Murphy, is an exercise physi- physiologist and that's something that she's particularly interested in. So there has been studies showing that um, in cancer patients, if they're well enough, and this is something that I think we we have to take into account as well, if the patient is well enough, if they're doing resistance training through their treatment, if that's mm. something that they're able to do to sort of stave off the muscle atrophy, um, I think there are some links there to say that if you're keeping these muscles active, if you're sta- staving off that atrophy, perhaps that goes some way to sort of reducing the, the muscle atrophy that we see in cancer. Um who knows how much of an impact the the 
chemotherapy has, these patients, especially in these very aggressive types, just aren't well enough to sort mm. of do this kind of thing. Mm. And, and that's what we say. It's this cachexia. It sort of robs them of, of their chance to fight. Yeah. So, so what, if, uh, yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you was, at these stages of cancer, the therapies are fairly heavy duty. How do we know that it's not the therapies that in some patients are causing the cachexia itself? Um, yeah, we we don't really know too much about that, um, to be honest with you. These are very aggressive uh, chemotherapy treatments mm, that these yeah. patients are on. Um it's mainly driven at reducing the primary tumour burden in these in these patients. Sort of anything that they can do for them further to that is secondary, yep. really. Yep. So, I mean, the idea generally is to sort of develop therapies that can be used alongside conventional chemotherapeutic interventions, something that's not going to interfere with the patient's primary treatment, but something that gives them a real chance, something that's going to extend their survival, that's going to give them a chance for this chemotherapy yep. to sort of kick in mm, and work, mm. um, especially so with the new treatments that we're Chemotherapies are developing at the moment. There's yeah, well, hopefully that therapies and other and other types. So that that brings me to my next question: is if if it's not necessarily coming or, or being sort of say accelerated by the chemotherapies, although you know we know how much damage that does to the body in general. How how much do the other fields that you mentioned or other conditions that have this same problem? How is the research from those and and dealing with those ones overlapping with the research that you're doing? Because it seems as though you're all looking at the same problem. Yeah, we are all looking at the same problem. There's not a lot known about it in the other types of diseases. So there's sort of the one theory that a lot of us concentrate on, and it's the one that we tend to rely on in a cancer setting. Mm in that there's potentially a signal that's coming from the tumour that is causing the muscle and the fat wasting. How that relates to other diseases, states where we don't have a tumour, primary tumour mm. burden, is interesting. Um, you would like to think that it's all one mechanism, but, of course, in disease that's often not the case. Yeah. Um, so... Do, do the other, sorry, let's just spitball here. We'll try and work it out so everyone's solved. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, but, but, you know, cancer cancer is about, in one sense, I always think of cancer as a failure of the immune system, right? I mean, in a sense, I mean, people think of it different ways, but to me, it's a failure of the immune system. We all have cancer every day of the week yep. and our immune system clears it out. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, in some people, that stops happening. You grow tumors, et cetera, et cetera, and it kills you. Um, in these other conditions, how related are they to the immune system? There is an immune element in there. So uh, one of the hallmarks of cachexia is an increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines, such as IL-6, TNF-alpha. That, like that sounds like a big word to me. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so we do see that that is yep. common and that is classified as one of the hallmarks of cachexia. Right. Um, we, in terms of looking at the immune system, I'm not going to pretend to be an immunologist. I know very little about immunology. That makes two of us. Uh, <laughs> my, background, my background's actually, I'm a mitochondrial biologist by training, so I'm right. more interested in the metabolism. So you could look at it another way. So cancer, yes, is a failure of the immune system. It's also a switch in metabolism mm, as well. Yeah. If you want to look at it down that way, it can be quite con controversial with the yeah. Warburg effect, but um, that is something that, a lot of people are starting to really get interested in. Um, so we are trying to combine the two sort of elements. So half of our lab is based at the Latrobe Institute for Molecular Sciences yep. in Bandura. The other half is based at the Olivia Newton-John with Professor Andrew Scott. So we feel that we're really uniquely placed. We've got sort of a 
you know, access to patients. We've got a clinical mm. um, element of our lab. At the moment, the immune side of it is, is difficult to, to work on because you've, either, you've got the signals coming from the tumour and then you've also got the involvement of the host immune system as well. So it, it's really difficult. So mm. you sort of have to take the two aspects and try and yeah. separate them. So, yeah. so we tend to concentrate on, on the cancer, the tumour side of it, um, and hopefully when we start to sort of get a handle on what causes cachexia, because we don't even know what drives the condition. So right. yep. in normal homeostasis, you have um, cachexia is driven by a pathway that's involved with the protein called FN14, which is a protein that we're particularly interested in. So in the normal cell, it binds a protein called tweak and it drives downstream sim- signaling. But in cachexia, we know that this happens independent of its natural ligand. So we don't even know wh- how this protein is causing cachexia. So it makes it really difficult. If you've got no idea what's causing mm. the syndrome, where do you start? Yeah. What, where do you sort of draw the line? Do you look at the immune cell? Do you look at the metabolism? Yeah. It's so you, really don't, you don't know the cause. You don't, yeah, I mean, you, you, you don't yeah. know the reason or, or the how to fix it, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have published um, before that we do have antibodies that we are looking to characterise that will block the condition, mm. but it's really difficult. Like you can say you've got these amazing therapies, but if you, if you don't know what they're doing to stop it, it's, it's very difficult. So yeah. we sort of need to go back, find yeah. the primary cause, yeah, Which look, it's, cool. it's very interesting stuff, Laura. Thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. It's, Absolutely, um, my pleasure. You know, good luck. It's good to hear that uh, both you know the university there and also the Olivia Newton John Institute for Cancer Research. Yes, it? Olivia Newton John Can- yeah, Institute cancer, for Cancer Research. Cancer yes. Research. Yes, that's uh, it a long title. Um, uh, working together because uh, you know it's it's no good if the patients aren't involved in this. Oh, so, we're very yeah. lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, Dr. Laura. Salami. Thank you for having me. Right. A postdoctoral fellow from the School of Molecular Science at La Trobe University. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We have some science news for you uh, now, folks, before the end of the show. Uh, Dr. Ewan, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I'd like to talk about menage a trois. All right. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a family, it's a family slot. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Uh, look, this is an amazing story that uh, comes out of a lab called the Difficult Bird Research Group, which is, has to be potentially the best name for a lab group ever. What's their acronym? DBRG. Is it just mm. birds that are annoying or is it so birds these are, that are these, these are birds that are t- typically endangered, uh, often migratory, really pains in the butt to study. Right, okay. um, and, and this species that I'm talking about is a swift parrot, um, which is a migratory species that moves between uh, the mainland and Tasmania annually. Um, it's mm-hmm. chasing bluegum, flowering bluegum, um, when it moves down in the spring and summer to Tasmania. But this is a... It's a really interesting story where basically this species is declining towards extinction, primarily due to um, logging of its habitat, so nesting mm. hollows that it's losing, but also uh, sugar gliders, which everyone thinks of these beautiful, cute, um, fluffy, wonderful, you know, flying possums, but they really do a, a horrible job of eating these parrots and, and kicking them out of their nesting hollows. So, and particularly the females, about fifty percent of nesting females are being killed by the sugar gliders. Um, in the areas that they're nesting. And what this is doing is skewing the sex ratio, the adult sex ratio, much uh, in favour of males. There's about, I think, 77% males and, and the rest females. And so this is a traditionally a monogamous species where the males and females nest together. But what's actually happening is that now that females are a shortage, 
um, males that are surplus, if you like, are harassing um, existing pairs mm. trying to get a look in <laughs> to, to mate and the females are actually calling males in and basically offering, they say, food for sex. And you might think, well, that's really interesting. <laughs> How do we know that? <laughs> that's right. You might say that's, difficult. You might say difficult that's kind of amusing, but what they've also shown is that um, through doing this, they're actually lowering their reproductive success and because basically what's happening is that the existing pair are spending more of their time basically trying to, you know, kick those other males out yeah, and, right. and those males are harassing the other male rather than them spending time feeding their nestlings. And so they showed that um, the ones that had these sort of extra males hanging around were only producing about uh, 70% of the fledglings as opposed to ones which are producing about three fledglings. So that's, mm. the, you know, the little baby birds leaving the nest. And so, you know, there's only about a 1,000 breeding pairs of these birds left um, in the world. They're already, and they're migratory, so they have all these problems already and they're losing their habitat. And now we have this situation, yeah, where I guess our change in the environment through logging of their forests as well as um, the sugar gliders, which were introduced, I should say, into Tasmania yep. in, the, yep. in the 19th century, um, are causing a change in their in their mating system, which is driving them even further down um, this kind of extinction vortex, if you like. So fascinating science. Um, yeah. yeah it's, it's always interesting to me when you hear about these scenarios where a monogamous sort of bird scenario changes to non because, you know, I've always had this image that, you know, a, a species will try and propagate its genes as, as widely and as most effectively as possible. So, yeah. you know, the question is, why were the birds monogamous in the first place? Yeah. And it would seem to be an easy tipping point yeah. to get them out of it. Yeah. Is that, is that yeah. And, th and this is the thing, because, you know, a lot of birds, which people have thought of monogamous, actually are not monogamous right. at all. Right. And the females do actively choose um, multiple males. They're spreading their risk in yeah, a sense, right? And yeah. so that's, that's really well known. But in this case, it looks like it's disadvantageous to do that because they're spending less time actually feeding their young and more time actually, you know, basically trying to, you know, get rid of these extra males who are hanging around yep. harassing the existing pair so <laughs> yeah it's it's amusing on one level but it's it's really quite bad news for this with parrots mm. yeah so what do we do I mean, uh, I mean how do you fix that because like the logging. But, yeah. We stopped cutting down their forests. Yeah. And the other thing that this, this group has done, they've done all these amazing kind of initiatives, but they've invented these sort of nesting boxes that close over at night time. Oh, right. So the parrots can be inside there, but yeah. the sugar gliders, when they come along, can't actually get in there right. and kill these parrots. Yeah, yeah. So That's great. Um, conserve their habitat and, and those those initiatives is another thing as well. So Damn, they, sugar gliders. And, and kill sugar gliders because they're evil. I think yeah, they're so cute. Yeah, there's something manifestly <laughs> dishonest about being that cute and that evil at the same yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Is that what someone said to you on the phone? I didn't know they were talking about me, but yeah. now it makes sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> have, you, have you got, beyond your great conversations out there, um, have you got any news for I, us? I have Chris? a little bit of news. Uh, look, I, I noticed this story um, a couple of days ago, and, and it's been picked up by, by ABC, among others, since, but if people haven't seen the photo of the uh, the Hawaiian monk seal with the eel up its nose. Look it up right it, now. It's yeah. kind of the equivalent of putting spaghetti through your nose. Well, I, I can't well, do no, that. Can you do that trick? The eels I haven't tried. Than it's, yeah, it's funny you should say that. Yeah, it's, it's more like putting a cabana up your nose. <laughs> <That's right>. um, <laughs> which which, which I have tried. Chris KP, you try How did that go? <laughs> it, yeah, I don't recommend it. Okay. Um, but so, still so, but, getting it out. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, Folks, it's, if you ever get invited to Chris KP's for lunch and he offers cabana, say no. Flavor saver. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it is, um, yeah, it's, it's actually quite, a, it's initially very, very immediately funny, but it's actually quite sad because um, it's, for both the eel and the monk seal, they're, yeah, they're the both eel stuck. and the seal. 
eel and the seal. Um, and, it's a children's and, book. Yeah, the I was thinking the seal, myself. The eel, the seal, and the snotty booger. Um, the <laughs> the salty booger. Um, anyway, so the, the the weird thing about this is that the photo was actually taken by um, researchers at the Hawaiian Monk Seal Research Program. Now, they've been researching monk seal, hence the name of the program, for decades. Hmm. Um, and this didn't happen at all for most of that time. Interesting. But in the last few years, it's happened a few times, like, you know, three or four times, which is a very, very small sample size. Um, so you wouldn't want to read too much into it, but it's one of those weird things that suddenly someone went, oh, my God, what is that? And then it never happened again until a few months later and then the next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't have any idea why it's happening. Interestingly, it seems to be happening in only the right nostril. Really? Again, very small sample size, but apparently it's only the right nostril. Yeah, slightly more than half the time. Yeah. yeah so three, right. three right nostrils, whereas it could have been well, two and one. Well, yeah, well, isn't it? I think it's four out of four, isn't it? Right nostril, oh, I think. Is it, I, think is it four? I think so. But yeah. it's still only four. You know, let's not get overexcited about it. Maybe it's three out of four. Um, but what is, what is 100% um, the case is that it's, it's juvenile seals. Mm. So, however, mm. this has happened. <laughs> It's because they're, they're not right-handed. They're not very good at doing stuff. <laughs> or right um, flippant. Or, yes. Um, <laughs> or just right-nosed. Do you think they're having a dare? It's like, come on, that's let's, what let's I snort too. Let's snort eels. Oh, it's like it's a <laughs> could thing. Go wrong. Yeah, it's, it's a thing yeah. out there, you know. <laughs> and there are parents still going, no, this could have been you, so. <laughs> so I'm sure that's what's going on. Um, so they don't really know why it's happening and whether it is, you know, a thing or not. Um, the, the, the interesting thing for mine is that if you think about how they, they forage on the bottom of the ocean, so they, they dare there mm. and they dig in around mm. with their nose. I mean, this is actually how mm. they do it. And so yeah, like they're yeah, snuffling yeah. about, knocking over rocks, etc. Next thing you know. So, so the, you know, the hypothetical is that, that you know, there's a seal, sorry, there's an eel hiding somewhere quietly doing its thing and suddenly its hidey hole gets ripped open and the first thing it does is freak out. The second thing it does is possibly defend itself and thirdly, look for somewhere else to hide. Mm. Oh. And there's a hole <laughs> so right there. There's a hole him. right there. <laughs> Let's just get straight Could have been worse. Uh, I guess. Oh, um, <laughs> Shane. I'm just saying. Hey, don't judge me. Um, the, uh, so so what's good, the good news, I guess, on one hand, if there is good news, is that these are researchers looking at this, so if there's any chance of someone working out what's going on, then it's them. Secondly, they've worked out a way of um, they sedate the seal and they can easily and slowly remove the eel. The downside is that none of the eels have survived so far. So my question is why don't the eels leave once they realise they get stuck? That's no cave. I think they just get stuck. Yeah, this is no no cave. Yeah. So that's my best Harrison Ford. (laughs) Really? Yeah, they're fierce monkeys. You can't do better. (laughs) Come on. Well, that came out much more aggressively uh, than I thought it was yeah, going to. Yeah, you said that aloud, but I, I, I like the eels. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think they just go in hard, get jammed in, hard and fast, and, and then get quickly. lodged in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And also, I don't, I don't yeah, I don't know because eels could, you know, in the water they can back up. You know, that's one great mm. things about eels; they like yeah. move forward and backwards really rapidly, yeah, but not in a nostril. Not in the nostril. Yeah. Apparently not. Apparently not. Anyway, there you go. So there's 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 a photograph worth looking up and a, and a bit of science that might lead nowhere or might end up being extremely insightful. I hope you're going to come back and report to us when they work out why this is going if on. If I find out that yeah. they've found out why, Good. I will yeah. absolutely do that. I can We're see us sitting picture. here in 15 years and Chris KP will finally let yeah. us know I feel an experiment coming up. <laughs> I think With Chris worms. is volunteering. <laughs> well, I think, Cabana six. Yeah, I think that's the problem. We need more seals to be doing this, and then coming up and telling us, "Hey, look at what happened to me." No, but Can we need you the help eel, We need the eels' point of view. We need to know why, why on earth the eels doing it. And I don't well, know. We need talking eels. So much to learn. Yeah, that's science. Three triple. Ah. 
Ben, have you got some news well, my, for us? Mine actually is a bit serious. I'm afraid there's no eels or, or cabana to be seen. But, you know, we've, we've all used and heard the catchphrase for many years now, if there's an app for that. And I want to tell cool. you about a, a cool story I found that was published in Nature Communications, which tells you it is actually vaguely serious. So we're talking anemia. Why don't get me, why, me, just don't get me started on the cult that is nature. No, we're not going the, there. The That's journal. boring. That's yeah. boring radio. Anyway. Yeah, we're talking anemia, which, um, you know, essentially is not having enough healthy red blood cells. In the Western world, in the developed world, we tend to associate it with dietary choices. And, yep. you know, it's not that serious. If you're diagnosed mm. with anemia, you could potentially eat more iron-rich foods or if that's not an option, you can take iron tablets. If it's really severe, you can have an infusion. You know, it's, it's mm. fast. We tend to not think about it as being that big a deal. But anemia actually affects more than 2 billion people around the world and in some parts of the world it's incredibly serious because um, it's not easy to diagnose and it's certainly not easy to treat so there's lots of people out there um, who are suffering anemia and whether that's you know the, the symptoms range from kind of basically um, fatigue or lightheadedness through to people fainting shortness of breath things like having brittle nails but when mm. it's most serious it can actually lead to very um, severe heart complications mm. potentially heart attacks and particularly for women who are pregnant it can cause all sorts of problems so it's it's sort of not yeah, something deal. yeah it's a big yeah. deal it's not something to to kind of ignore what did you say 2.5 billion people uh, somewhere more, somewhere upwards of two billion. I don't know yeah, if it's two point five. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a mm. huge number. Of people. Almost a third Nearly of the world's third. population. Yeah. yeah. And so one of the issues, of course, is for us, it's very easy to be tested for anemia. You go and have a blood test. You could get the results in a couple of hours, not a problem. But, of course, most of the people experiencing anemia are in parts of the world where that's not an option. To which point we say... There should be an app for that. Exactly. There should be an app for that. So one of the things that I didn't know is that the skin underneath your fingernails doesn't have any pigment in it. So if you look at your fingernails now, any kind of pinkness that you're seeing directly under your hmm. fingernail is the direct result of um, the amount of um, hemoglobin in your blood because it's not coloured by the skin. So someone really smart came along and said, well, I wonder then if you could analyse the colour of people's um, fingernails or the, you know, the skin under the fingernails and somehow calibrate that and say, well, this is where this tells us whether this person is suffering anemia or not. Wow. And yeah. they've developed an app that can do exactly that. So you basically take a photo of your fingernails, you tap on the app to say, this is the, this is the bit that's the fingernail. Um, and the app uses the photo metadata to account for ambient light conditions. Mm. And it uses a massive big data set of uh, photographs of people's fingernails with known hemoglobin mm. levels. And they They've come up with this incredibly cheap, easy, non-invasive way of being able to diagnose whether somebody has anemia or not. Which Did I they think say is how accurate awesome. it was? They're still working on it, so it's not being uh, widely rolled are you out being yet. Being cynical, I'm always cynical, <laughs> always asking the hard questions, Chris. I'm not sure you are. <laughs> so I, I read a bit about it, and and they're not claiming that it's perfect, but they certainly think they'll be able to get it to the point where it is good enough to be able to diagnose anemia. And the other thing is imagining that there are people out there who do have anemia who need mm. to monitor how their levels um, are changing. And instead of having to find mm. your way to a medical centre and mm. having a blood test sure, and having yeah. it tested, you can do it non-invasively at home for free, and you can know whether you're at a level that so you need the, to do something about it. Does the app have the ability to? I mean, could if you thought you're at risk, could you do a sort of, you know, every day, every 10 hours where I'm going to do a test, does the app have a, 
hold that data for you so yeah, you can look at a trend. That's yeah. cool. That's yeah, very so, nice. Yeah. So for you, you can monitor how things yeah. are changing in your own system and maybe you have to get a baseline reading, you know, um, to help you do that. So, yeah, I, I think there's still some work to go, but I just love the idea that yet again mm. somebody is finding a way mm. to make smartphones work for people who don't have access to the same uh, medical equipment mm. that we completely take for granted. Mm, yeah. And something yeah. like anemia that's so prevalent and can be really problematic for and people. And to me, this is a bit of a ballpark thing too. It's yep. like, mm. am I in the ballpark of anemia or yeah, am I not? Exactly. Because totally. in many of the communities we're talking about, that's actually the answer you want. Yep. Totally. You, you don't need the exact number, like how bad is my anemia? Yep. It's like I'm either in that camp yep. or I'm or, not. Or I'm approaching it. Or I'm approaching it. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, even if it was only 25% accurate, you can yep. still give people that ballpark thing mm. that says go and see a medical professional yep. because this is what you your problem is this is yep. why you're tired exactly. every day this is why you've got joint pain this is what you know all these things yeah, or that, you're short of breath or yeah, you're fainting all, or you've yeah, got chest all pain of these things because the thing is that anemia um, symptoms of anemia can be symptoms of so many other more serious yeah, things. Yeah. And so working out whether it's it's anemia or not is actually really important because if you don't have anemia but you're having severe chest pains, well, you really need to go and get yeah, some help to work right. out what yeah. else it could yeah. be. It just it amazes me like what we forget is if you actually look at the specs on your current smartphone for the, the optical system in it, so mm. the, the camera and the lens, and then you compare those to some of the specifications of certain micro- microscopes and so forth 30 years ago, well, you know what? You've got something pretty powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we often forget just how good these things are. So I'll give you an example of the other day. Something, this, this just dawned on me to do this, but one of my remote controls stopped working for an amplifier. And, you know, these things are costly to buy. Mm. So the question was, is it the remote or is it the receiver? Yeah. Mm. That has failed. Now, one of the things that you have in your smartphone is a little camera that can also image infrared. Mm. Yes. Right? Yes. So beyond our visual range, you can see a little bit into, into the infrared, which is what the remote control does. Yeah. So if you turn your camera on and you face your little remote control from your television, whatever, and you start pushing the buttons, you'll see little flashes in the camera view. <laughs> That's cool. And it's a little just a way to check what's actually wrong. And I was like, you know, this is technology we have just laying mm. around the house and we take it for granted. And you think about, you know, so you can measure infrared as well. You can do yep. all these things and all in your phone. And we, we only use like such, oh, Couple of selfies. Well, that's not that's not really using it to its full capability, as you say. It's amazing. So, mm. yeah, interesting stuff. I thought it was very nice. cool story. Yeah, it's a very like cool it. story, Jen. Well, one thing uh, this will excite you in because I know he's into this stuff. But um, yesterday, <laughs> <laughs> you can see where this is going. Uh, yesterday, China launched um, a lunar probe mission, which is which is interesting because if you uh, now it's really interesting because China has been basically slowly but surely doing all the things that the US and Russia did in the 60s and 70s and building up their space flight capability and just ticking them off one at a time, you know, this and that and the other. And, and in probably two or three years, they're, they're working on this international, uh, sorry, a, a national space station for themselves. Um, but this rover is going to the dark side of the moon. So this is the first time they've done something that no other nation has actually done. They've just been ticking the boxes of other nations sort of efforts mm. so far, which is right to do. But this is new. And the reason it's so hard is because the moon is what we call tidally locked. So, you know, one side's always facing us. The other side tends to get most of the shit hitting it. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a, it's not as smooth as the side that we see. So if you want to land on the other side, it's a lot harder. Now, it's often referred to as the dark side of the moon, which yeah. is not true because um, actually it's only dark 14 days I, out of 20 I really days. hope they're playing Pink Floyd while they're doing oh, this. There's no doubt that's going to be happening. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it'll be played, played at the landing. But, yep. you know, one side is actually in complete light for 
14 days and, the, and then it's in complete darkness for 14 days. That's actually how the moon works, um, <laughs> which means that it goes from a temperature of, you know, 120 degrees to minus the same, you know, like massive temperature variations. So, you know, this small rover has to do some pretty serious testing of, of capabilities to be able to survive that temperature differential. And also they had to put up some small um, orbiting craft to relay the signals back to Earth because it's on the far side of the moon. Mm. You can't send signals back. So they, they've done some really interesting achievements to do this. Mm. It'll be interesting to see how they, they go, and they'll be the first ones to explore the dark side of the moon. So mm. fascinating. Now, Absolutely. Dr. Ewan and Dr. Jen, this is your last week for the year. Thanks yeah, so much we're, for we're a big year. we a wedding next yeah. weekend, so we'll Ooh. be thinking of you. Yep, so it's great to have had you in all year, and we'll see you again next year. Thanks Pleasure. for having us. Happy festive season all. Thank Indeed. you very much. Chris KP, you're not sure. You oh, might turn yeah. up next week. You're just thinking about I'm it. I'm working on it, yeah. <laughs> you see if he gets any better offers, Shane. Just, just go easy on him. Is that so him. unreasonable? Is Chris escorting people to the movies? I think that's what he's doing, right? <laughs> yeah. I think he's going to be really busy. <laughs> back, to, back to Jen's comment about better offers. We'll yeah, be seeing Chris right. KP next week for I, sure. I think he's likely to be here. <laughs> Have a good show without us, Chris. Thank we'll be you. thinking of you. <laughs> no, you won't. Uh, there we go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening to an hour of, uh, so maybe 30 minutes of science. Um, <laughs> We'll be back next week with more science. Have a great Sunday, folks, and remember, science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.